As today's technology blows away the sands of time, we are digging deeper into the secrets of these mysteries. Welcome to the PowerShell Podcast, the podcast for PowerShell and the PowerShell community. Far more powerful than all the others. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey everybody, welcome back to the PowerShell Podcast. I am the best looking PowerShell host in the business, Jordan, with the reason everybody is here, Andrew oh, Plaw. I thought you were going to say the second best looking guy, PowerShell host, but okay. Yeah. No, we pride ourselves on honesty. Oh, <laughs> that's definitely true. Hello, everybody. How are we doing? They can't answer. We can't. Well, I'm going to assume they're doing great. So, Jordan, you've been busy lately. Certainly uh, continuing your flourishing acting career. <laughs> of, of YouTube shorts. Of YouTube shorts, man. They've been on point lately, but there's one in particular, and there'll be a link in the show notes that is one of the favorite shorts I've seen of any variety all year. Um, should we tease what it's about? Let me just say this. Okay. We had to use the blur. Okay. <laughs> we had to use the blur, and we'll leave it at that. I'll let the rest be a surprise, but it is it, so good. It is a magical episode. It's so uh, we've got more shot that have to do with introvert it's weird they're looking for a good introvert to shoot videos with and everyone thought of me the guy who does content all the time in the public eye man people only see that part they don't see me fall apart every every night hey (laughs) we appreciate the content you know like every rock star they just create and you just you know you imagine everything's perfect in the background that's how it goes right absolutely that's what humans are like so Important news, if someone is watch, or watching or listening to this on the day that it dropped. Oh, yeah. Monday. Some, Monday listeners yeah. are favorite. Is there some, some kind of event tomorrow? Some kind of monumental event? Tell you what, if you don't know and are not taking full advantage of PowerShell profiles, <laughs> I've got some good news for you. Tomorrow, we have an event on our PDQ Discord where I will be taking you on a tour of how to take advantage of profiles. I'll be referring to some blog content from our guest today, which we'll get into that in a second because we have a very special guest. If you've read the title, you already know, but it's exciting. But yeah, check it out tomorrow if you're there. And and we're looking to do more and more of these kind of interactive, kind of lunch and learn, about 30 minutes of teaching cool stuff. A lot of it's PowerShell. Sometimes we'll do other sysadmin topics, but excited for that. I won't be at that one because that is Patch Tuesday, and I always have a lot of content yeah, to do Patch on Patch Tuesday. Tuesdays. Yeah, you do a write-up every Patch Tuesday, right? Do You do, you do a video and a write-up, don't you? Yes. Nice. Busy guy. I remember I was on a team that had to do a lot of stuff on Patch Tuesday for a while, and I've definitely enjoyed this new role where I don't have to worry as much. Now, now it's just Tuesday for you. Now it's just like, hey, Jordan, you're doing a great job. That's, that's my job. So next week, yeah, PSCon for you. PSCon for you. I know we've been teasing it. We're going to keep talking about it because it's a pretty big event. And in fact, with our guest today, he's a speaker there, and we're going to talk to him about that as well. And you know what, Jordan? I think we should go next year. What do you think? I've been a fan of that idea every year. Get some on-the-ground reporting, see what the real vibe is like. And if you're interested in checking out or having us attend next year and get some good interviews on the ground, leave us a comment below. Let us know. Uh, another thing I wanted to shout out is hit us up on our Twitter at PowerShell Pod. We've been asking the audience for questions, and I think we have an audience uh, question for this week's episode and some other great ideas. So if you're not there, tap in with us. We're sharing some good content, and it's a good way to keep track of when the latest episodes are out. All right. But Jordan, I think we got to let the, we got to bring them in, man. 
Yes, bring in the reason everyone's here. We got special guest Fred. Returning guest. Returning guest, yes. One of my favorite guests ever. Fred, welcome, my friend. Thanks for inviting me back. I know you've been busy today. You mentioned earlier you were putting in some work on one of your projects. Which project was that? Oh, totally. Um, the matter of all projects, really, the PS framework. It's like my magnum opus, scripting framework, logging, configuration, and about 100 different solutions for problems you don't have yet. Uh, so it's all about uh, optimizing the script, uh, my scripting, being more efficient about it, like um, moving the repetitive tasks out of the code so that when I write a script, I can focus on the actual business goal of the script. And I don't have to reinvent logging yet one more time or all of the other parts of that. So it's getting a new feature. It has received a lot of fine tuning because it's grown over the years. So I did some code maintenance today and, you know, fixed some technical web. I kind of forgot about some not so neat things in there that have been bugging me. And I keep forgetting putting them in when I do the next update. So now I managed uh, to fix some obscure thing other than me probably nobody ever noticed which is fine so the takeaway here is ps framework is already the greatest thing ever but now it's even more greater -er. thank you so what's uh, coming in in the next version which i'm currently working in is a way to probably properly resolve the bloody paths one of the things that's always bugged me is that I want to pro support regular paths um, and literal paths. I need to resolve them. I need to handle the error. And then at the end, what I really want to do is over all of the resolve final paths of that, that's what my actual business code is going to do, like import files or uh, sort them, rename them, whatever we want to do with that. So there's a lot of case handling or just, oh, no, I'm not going to do a literal path because how important could literal path be? And uh, do I support only one path or multiple paths? Do I turn a lot of decision making if, else, and loops uh, like one in a four page of code just to handle the bloody paths? I want to turn this into a one liner. So I have a question. So what is the difference between a regular path and an absolute path? Oh, no, no, not absolute path, literal path. Okay. Um, when you do a regular path, for example, for get child, get child item or get item, it interprets wildcards. Like, you know, uh, this, this wildcard start symbol, get item, wildcard.ps1 gives you all of the ps1s in the target folder. Right. Now, um, literal path does not do that. Both wildcard path and literal path can be absolute or relative. Now, um, where do we get into problems of that? Um, the problem is wildcard interpretation is not just the star symbol. There are actually three wildcard expressions, and one of them is a legal part of the file name. You can do a star, which is zero or any arbitrary characters. You can do a question mark, which is exactly one arbitrary character. And then you can put in uh, several characters inside square brackets, which means any one of those characters. So I can, for example, go file, open square bracket, zero, one, two, close square bracket, and file one is going to match. File three is not going to match, since we only allowed zero to two. Okay. That. 
And if you now have a file that has a legitimate square bracket in its name, you can't use the path parameter to find it. You need the literal path. Gotcha. And you're trying to make that process have a little bit of uh, brains to it. So it can kind of, you don't have to do so much work. Mostly I want to do the work of all of the different error handling scenarios once and then have a one-liner instead of a complicated if-else for each loop mess. Nice. Fred, I want to ask, man, would you ever be interested in doing like a, you know, I mentioned the lunch and learn things. Would you ever be interested in doing one about getting started in PS Framework and kind of some entry points, just some quick examples to kind of start taking advantage of things like this? Oh, I am always happy to brag about my toys and doing introductory call. Uh, intro introductory bragging for features is totally in scope of that. Awesome. Uh, as a matter of fact, there should be several user group videos out there where I did exactly that. Of course, they do get kind of dated because new features keep coming in. But uh, most of the main features should be covered in uh, at least several user group meetings. I don't have them at hand, but I can try looking them yeah, up we'll again. Yeah, put them in the show notes. Through the magic of future us doing work, they'll be in the show notes below if you want to get some introductory content on PS Framework and related modules. Of course, we do have psframework.org, yep. which does include documentation, including quick start guides. Hmm. I definitely know that because I have referred to them extensively because that's what I do with documentation. I don't, tr I try not to remember too much and I just know where to go. And then I go and then I just copy paste a lot of times. Well, I do try to keep up, but I, I'll be honest, um, the website there with the documentation, it's nice and everything for the key features. It's good, but there are so many, so many, so many nougats and fragments and things that are that are really great for that specific scenario that I just haven't gotten yet to document properly, uh, since they do tend to be somewhat niche. Fair for enough. example, I, I, I like my recent feature, the throttle um, uh, command, get piece of throttle. It's basically like it, um, you tell it how many requests and what time you can do. And then you get an object back where you can just request the next slot. And if you're, if you've used all of that, it's going to wait until the the oldest uh, request has expired. So, for example, you're trying to work against an API that has a, a sixty requests per minute limit. You can use that to ensure you never uh, go over that limit. Nice. Now, on the topic of sharing cool projects. PSConf for you. you. What are you talking about there? Are you giving some talks this year? Give us a little preview. I'm, I'm always trying to, uh, to, uh, to get in there. And the problem is I have so many projects I want to brag about that I ha had a deal with Rob that I would basically give him the head of first deal, like picks, gives me the first top six or top eight picks, and I submit only those because he really didn't want to review another 20 uh, abstracts from me when he only gets to pick two. So, um, this time around, I'm going to be talking about um, a security topic and a PowerShell deep dive topic. On the security end, after last year's PowerShell security talk, that was a bit more general, like how do I secure PowerShell? This time, we're going to look at how can we use PowerShell to be more secure as admins. Specifically, what I'm going to be talking about is just enough administration. We do have a lot of um, 
PowerShell remoting is awesome. PowerShell remoting is a security manager. PowerShell remoting is whatever uh, conversations going on in, in Microsoft with customers out in the community. But one of the things that we always have been talking about is like it would be great if this trust enough administration thing were something that we could use. The problem is the it's it's a bit of a science. The fundamental benefit of Chia, let's start with the benefit, is that I can delegate permissions to a process and not privilege to a system. With default PowerShell remoting, if I want to enable a help desk user, for example, to help users on a terminal server farm, I need to give them local admin to the entire farm. I don't want to give my help desk local admin to my terminal server farm. That's usually not the recipe for stable operations. So what you can do with chair is enable help desk user to users to figure out which user is locked on there, send a message to user and disconnect that user if the session is hanging and nothing else. Now this is this is a, this is a fancy use case and there's a lot of more. It allows us to stop having our senior admins be the bottleneck because we need permissions and we don't want to give permissions to the help desk, whatever you junior admins, whatever. So at that point, the senior admin becomes the bottleneck because they need to ask that senior admin to do things for them. And that senior admin surprisingly has a busy job already and would kind of like to not if you have to be borrowed for things like that. And that's where GIA comes in. The problem that we have with that, however, is that GIA in its natural form is quite inconvenient to use, to implement, to deploy. To manage, so it, to update. It seems to me that the upfront cost of GIA is massive because you have to go and do all the research to find out who needs what, and the chances you get everything on your first go seems unlikely. Yes, and then you need somebody who is savvy enough at PowerShell to actually put that GIA endpoint together and make it work. And at some point, this becomes a study project that is a lot, a lot of effort just to get that piece working uh, that you actually want. So I've got a project um, together with Miriam Wiesner. Uh, mm -hmm. or, originally, I've been doing some more on the operation side of it called Geanalyzer, where we um, try to solve that problem so I can build a geo endpoint and deploy it in three lines of code. Wow. And um, what we also do is we try to pick uh, to the uh, to note and warn about misconfigurations that are insecure or possibly insecure. For example, it's kind of a problem to allow start process in a Jira endpoint because you can basically start an unrestricted PowerShell on the remote machine if you do, at least unless you uh, very, very narrowly tailor it down and just what you can do with start process. So it's usually something you want to discourage and so we want to have some tooling there to help prevent admins shoot themselves into the foot and build a security vulnerability in there. That's of course only an eight. We can't guarantee one hundred percent perfectness, but better than nothing. Wow! Now you mentioned Miriam Weisner, I believe. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, Do you work with her often, or just on this project? I. I used to work with her. Actually, she was the person to recommend me to join Microsoft originally. We met at PSConf EU. 
Um, by now, she has moved roles twice. She's now a security researcher and really apparently really, really happy in her new role. But that leaves her very little time uh, on uh, on projects that, that are simply out of scope for her currently do work. So she contributed a lot of the uh, of the mindset of the theory of the uh, of the intelli intelligence piece on the analysis side about preventing users from building an insecure GI endpoint. Awesome. And I did most of the partial wrangling around uh, making this whole thing into a freeliner that we can just deploy. Which is really cool. I'm definitely looking forward to that. But I want to give a shout out to her because she has an awesome book on PowerShell coming out in September called PowerShell Automation and Scripting for Cybersecurity, Hacking and Defense for Red and Blue Teamers. And we've been in talks uh, with her to get her on the pod in the future. Um, it's a really cool book. You can pre-order it now. Can only recommend that. Yeah, uh, links in the show notes, but she's awesome. Really cool to, to see. I didn't know you knew her, so <laughs> kind of closing a circle. All right. Well, the other session, once we're done with the security part, is um, something Rob has wanted me to talk about for some time. And uh, honestly, I wanted to talk about for some time, which turned out to be maybe not the perfect decision, actually. We'll see how, how it turns out. And that is... Um, Parameter binding level four hundred plus, and why why am I kind of not so positive about that? Mostly because I've been running my head against building that presentation recently, and realized there were a few problems with building a presentation out of that topic. Uh, first of all. Um, it turns out that building a good story and narrative um, around parameter binding is somewhat difficult. And while that's not a technical requirement to do good tech content, but part of your role as a speaker in front of an audience is to somewhat entertain them as well with the topic. You know how, how great it is to sit in a room with a dust dry speaker uttering technical facts at you and hoping something sticks. Well, I'm trying to not do that. And I think generally I'm doing a fairly decent job about it. But it this time turned out to be a bit more challenging than, for example, the Chia talk, hmm. which I'm very enthusiastic about. But the parameter binding one, it's going to be a beast. There's so many aspects of it that you might want to mention. But do they have a place at a level 400 plus talk? Yes, no. Maybe yes, maybe no. Actually, uh, for example, let's talk about splatting. Splatting is a technique that very few people discover on their own because you don't even know that it's something to look for. And most of the search terms lead you rather to dynamic parameters rather than splatting. So hold so on one second. Before we move too far on, what is parameter binding for people who have never heard of it? Um, it's the act of providing data to a command. Okay. So like kind of giving the parameters their value kind of thing? Yes. Like, uh, hey, here's, here's the child item command. I'm going to give it a path so it knows where to look for child items. I've got a user, give it the user command. I give it the name of the user to, get, uh, to, uh, to give it. Now, this is a very simple process if you only have like this one piece of information and it is obvious matched to the command that you're providing it to. But then you factor in pipeline uh, dynamic parameters, splatting, explicit bound, positional bound, and 
the act of data conversion that also factors into this whole thing. Uh, suddenly it gets very, very complicated, or at least the waters get a lot more muddled. And it has turned to be interesting to figure out what piece of information am I going to include in there explicitly? How much assumptions do I make about the knowledge uh, people will have that come in there? Because at PSConf EU, we've got a mixed audience. There are going to be people who, um, well, are there to get new ideas and learn a bit, but are, aren't really that deep into the game. On the other hand, we have literal PowerShell team members that are kind of wondering what the hell is Fred doing there? And why is he talking about something that obvious? Okay, they're not never going to say that, but um, it, we have a wide range of target skill levels that might be in the audience. I have to assume it's going to be the deep end based on simply the session title. Uh, so um, I'm going to sk be skipping over a lot of things. On the other hand, I need to set the baseline on some aspects in order to make sure that people at least have enough information to pick up of that. Then there are other sessions, um, uh, session recordings about parameter binding. I try to not collide too much with other sessions on that topic. And I also have this, this requirement at myself to provide an actual specific benefit to the participant. So they not only go out of, uh, go out of the session and think, whoa, my brain is melting, but that was some cool dish. I'm just never going to touch it. But I also want to give them something that well, provides value, right? Not so, just entertainment. <laughs> this this sounds like one where it's a good thing it's going to be recorded because you're probably going to want to revisit it a couple of times. And I will have a lot of reference links of some simple uh, examples. With here's more if you want more, more details, go there. Nice. So I'm going to go off a tangent on Splatty just because this is the first time in PowerShell I was working with a mentor. We just tried something. Would this work? I can't remember what the script is about, but we're building a pretty complex script together. And uh, we ended up with a whole bunch of splats and we're having a hard time getting in there. And so we asked the question is like, can you build an array of splats? And we figured out the best way to know is to try it. And absolutely function and it cut out all of this work we would have had to do. I don't remember what the script is about, but I do remember on the fly, we built an array of splats and it removed so much code. And that was, the, that was when PowerShell became, for the first time, like, this is the coolest thing I've ever dealt with. It is. That is pretty awesome. As a matter of fact, since we had a reference to one of my projects just now in this talk, do you know about the command convert, dash PS, uh, convert to dash PSF hash table? Tell us. You give it an object like, for example, PS bound parameters. You tell it which command it is intended for, and it will pick all of the properties on the input object that match a parameter for that command and give you a hash table to split into that. Nice. That's fantastic. Uh, makes it a lot easier to just pass through parameters to specific commands without having to do a lot of else there. Nice. You know, Fred, I definitely want to get into some deep security talks, but before we move too far beyond this topic, I have a question about... Should people be using the ISC or VS code? Um, about 99 out of 100 cases, I would be saying VS code. Why? Um, there are a huge range of arguments, in my opinion. But um, two key factors, really, if I have to nail it down, two key factors that make the huge difference. Factor number one. 
in VS Code, you get auto format. How often do you have some put together scripts, copy, paste it out of the internet that's grown a lot uh, over the years with the uh, author just adding a few more lines, adding a few more complexities. The ISE does not give you proper support for indentation. It does not make your code look good. It just makes it work enough to, well, work. VS Code gives you a single or key binding or an option to do it on file safe to auto-format your entire script to fix the annotations to make the whole thing a lot more readable. I cannot overstate how much value that brings, especially for debugging and for actually be willing to revisit your code. Ugly code, code that is not properly indented, code that just doesn't look readable is far more likely to be abandoned because you just can't invest the time and the emotional energy to go and fix that thing. So it's uh, a very cheap investment into better looking code that provides more value long time. Um, the second reason out of two that I really, really, really cannot overstress, please use VS Code, please do not use the ISE, is that DBS Code is a lot better at creating multi-file projects. I've seen so many gargantuan scripts in, in, written in the ISE that could have been a very, very easy to manage multi-file project, but because um, it hasn't have a file browser natively, the ISE, it's, um, well, people tend to write longer, bulkier scripts from that. So it is a very easy way to set you on the track to more reusable, easier to read code without actually forcing you to do too much to reach that goal. Now, for the third reason out of two why you should be using VS Code, it comes with PS Script Analyzer automatically enabled so you get also pointed out when you're messing up somewhere that is actually fairly accurate in a lot of cases even if some of the yellow curly lines can be irritating because they're complaining about something that is not actually accurate. But most of the time, they prevent you from putting yourself in the food before you ever even start with debugging, which is reason for out of Twitter as a lot better debugger. There is. It's like a pro level, right? Like uh, real big-time developers use the features and the debugging uh, stuff. Actu uh, actually, th that's the whole thing. You don't have to be a... a deep dive developer for that. You can benefit with very little investment into actually making that editor work for you. Don't need to have complex developer problems in order for it to be the correct tool for you. That's yes. great. Now the ISE has the one advantage that it's everywhere. Now, there is one, uh, one big secret I have been told about, and that is it is actually possible to deploy VS Code using something like SCM Package Manager. You just need to wrap it up once. And depending on the size of, of your organizations, you might already have it in your local application, in your, uh, in your uh, application store to install it and just, uh, well, uh, you never bothered to look. So there might be something there. And well, the other reason why I think um, you should be going into there is it also helps right, um, get yourself into other aspects such as how to deploy your code because honestly I don't want people to always go with RDP to the target machine and start up the ISE. VS Code can totally remote debug a script for you in the target computer. 
And that is such a cool feature. I've used that for a lot of things. But for example, I've developed scripts for my Raspberry Pi on my Windows machine from VS Code, can run the code on there, but I get to use my same interface and really cool stuff. Yep. So I want to ask about a little bit more of customizing things because um, I know VS Code has a lot of customization, but where does the profile fit into all this? Because I know we have PowerShell profiles, but what are they and, and how should we be using these? Well, um, the PowerShell profile is like a starting script for your console that runs every single time you start up your console, which means that you, it's the first step to really customizing your console experience because you can make sure that that little tool that you actually want is always available. Before that, um, when you start as an admin and just do you know some some short YouTube videos and maybe put together scripts snippets in your ISE, what ends up with all of the tools that you're using, all of the knowledge pieces that you want available, they're basically open tabs in your ISE, and that's kind of a problem. Now, PowerShell Profile allows you to fundamentally fix that. Because of that, you can't just have it available on every single console start, either for all of your PowerShell consoles, or just for your VS Code, or just for your interactive console in the Windows terminal, or whatever your person is in that regard. Now, um, the path to that file is in the variable $profile. You can run it on any console, and it will point you to that path, where that is. And if you do $profile, dot and then hit a totally secret key combination. It's called control spacebar. You, it's like tabbing only better. It's like tab completion only, the, the kind of tab completion you always wanted to have and nobody told you about. And with that, you can get like a Linux selection menu and then you can see that your dollar profile actually has four paths, not just one. And that is one for this current console and this current user. One of them is for all consoles, so both VS Code, ISE, or regular PowerShell for the current user. And the same again for all users on the machine. They are being processed from least specific to most specific. So the current user, current console is the last one that is loaded. So if you have the same information in multiple, the last one wins. Wow. So I think. The control space thing, that comes from PS Readline, right? It comes from PS Readline, yes. Great tip, though. That's one of those where it's like, oh, you're listening? Yeah, control space. So just type in dollar profile dot control space, and you can see all of the things. And uh, the properties you were mentioning are all users, all hosts, all users, current host, current user, all hosts, current user, current host. So Indeed. awesome stuff. Now, important part, that control space bar is not specific to the profile. Right. This is something you can use whenever you would otherwise hit the tab key. Yep. And if you don't yet, make sure you get the latest version of PS Readline. Install module PS Readline dash force. Or install PS Resource if you have the latest. Well, <sighs> PS Resource get it's now, uh, it's now named. Yeah. We are going to have uh, Sydney on to talk about that at some point. But yeah, I believe they're renaming PS Get for V3 to PS Resource Get, did. right? Already did. Already right? did. Wow. Module name conflict uh, thingy. Oh, okay. I, I didn't read the issue leading to it, so I guess that makes sense. 
Okay. Love that. And you had a great blog that you wrote about it that had a lot of this uh, tips in there. So definitely check that out. Absolutely. Um, it's just, to give a, just to give a few teasers about what you would be putting in there. For example, you can define default parameter values for your commands. So let's say you have to work a lot with uh, your ESX farm. Uh, you could uh, start the credentials for connecting with that in an encrypted file or via secret management in your Windows uh, store. And as part of your console startup, read that secret and write it into the default value for the connection parameter. Or what you can also do very, uh, very funny is you can add tab completion for other commands. Just for example, I've got a snippet somewhere for um, connecting to Azure. When I connect to Azure, I need to select the tenant and the subscription, and I have access to multiple tenants and multiple subscriptions. So I added some tab completion for that that would dynamically add that to the Azure command. So when I run connect AC account, I can pick the subscription name, uh, the subscription and this um, tenant name. And then within that tenant, I can pick the subscription and the subscription is an ID, a good, which is really, really user unfriendly. So I added some uh, undertitle description that explains what the actual subscription name is. So that it actually allows me to fix, figure all that out and I don't have to memorize everything and I don't need to have several separate lines that I copy paste for individual customer or test accounts and test subscriptions. I can just do tab completion and that's it. I like that. Also, definitely shout out to the dollar sign PS default parameter values. I make good use of that. I never have to specify no type information on convert to CSV or export CSV anymore. And I have a few others as well, but great tips there. Absolutely. Okay. Also, when you're in Germany, export uh, CSV uses uh, the comma delimiter, while the German Excel expects the semicolon. Mm. So that's also a great thing to change. You can just double click on the CSV file and it actually looks good. Or use invoke item on the, ex on the CSV file you just exported if you don't want to leave the console. Very convenient. Nice. You can also modify the prompt, like what's shown on your screen on the left side of where you're typing. If you don't want the full path, you can truncate it. Or if you want some extra information or you want to have a new line in there, so the path is one line above your input, so you always start on the leftmost border. Or you want to get really, really colorful. The profile is basically designed to allow you to customize your console experience to the way that works for you. I love it. And uh, if your mind is blown and this is new to you and you're listening on Monday, come by tomorrow. But I think we'll do some more in the future as well because I think profiles are underutilized uh, a lot of times. The more advanced you are in PowerShell, you're definitely taking advantage of them, I've found. But I think there's a lot of people who are using PowerShell who may not even know that there's a profile that... Uh, they can take advantage of. So I want to switch to some security stuff. I want to pick that brain of yours and squeeze out as much security knowledge as I can so I can leave here <laughs> feeling just mm, ready and confident in my environment. So no, well, no sure. pressure, but uh, execution policy is akin to having a rock in the front yard is still one of the most repeated lines we get. So you've set the <laughs> bar high. You set the bar high for this one. Well... Go ahead. <laughs> Let's start it simple, man. What are the most common security risks associated with PowerShell? And what are some ways to mitigate them? 
Well, the most uh, common security risk I've been seeing, given what um, uh, I've been facing again and again, and literally had to answer once more 10 minutes before we started our conversation here, is uh, senior management trying to shut down PowerShell. It's a major tool for your defenders, and disarming your defenders is usually a bad idea. Don't do this. Other than that, um, it's uh, one of the things that we need to be aware of is that PowerShell is really not the entry point for the attacker. It's uh, once they already have code execution, they can try to do something with that. So uh, the key tools really for that is um, preventing that, ideally, which is not as trivial as uh, might be desirable because you literally can't completely remove it without going out of support. But um, constraint language mode is a really great mitigation to preventing the attacker from just going ahead. It, it catches a lot of the automated uh, by your attacker software on the, on the darknet packages. Many of them will then just switch to another language. But from a PowerShell perspective, that is uh, the best way to go about that. Other than uh, that, uh, the greatest vulnerability we have to deal with is insecure um, configurations. Mm -hmm. This is usually really more of an environment thing rather than a PowerShell thing. For example, classic problem, we have the same local admin password on every single machine because we uh, have the, the one, that one default image we're deploying everywhere. There are solutions for that. We, for example, have recently released Labs version 2, local admin password solution, to make sure you've got unique passwords. If you don't, however, and the attacker compromises one machine, they compromise all of the machines. So the trick what we can do from a partial hardening perspective here to reduce that risk, even if we can't do unique passwords, please, please do it. It's really, really simple. Please do unique local admin passwords. Uh, but if you can't do that for whatever reason, or it's just out of your hand and you only own PowerShell, um, the key thing really is hardening remoting. If the attacker has local admin on the machine, you have to assume that machine is lost. And the next key mitigation is preventing the attacker from using that to well compromise the rest of the environment. Controlling where attackers can connect to or connect from using Windows Firewall is an easy step for that because let's be honest, most clients really have absolutely no business using PowerShell remoting elsewhere. It's the admins that should be doing that. What is a good case for disabling PowerShell? Is there a good use case for no. that? Is there an argument to be made for it? No, it is not supported. You don't disable the file system. You don't disable PowerShell. Yep. Now, Let's say someone has access, you know, unfortunately they're on your network and the first thing they do is try and use PowerShell and they're not able to. Um, what would be the next tool that, that people would jump to if they're living off the land, let's assume? Um, I'd say you'd go to your next uh, priest and offer a prayer of thanks. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I don't, depending on what your religion is, you should be offering gratitude for the attacker being stupid enough for this. Yeah. Now, what you should have done before we go to that point that the attacker is actually already here is enable script log logging. So mm -hmm. you can figure out what they're doing because when they're using PowerShell, they're kind of telegraphing all that they're doing. You 
just kind of need to well look at that because if you're not looking for the signals, nothing to be gained there. That of course leads to the next problem that you somehow need to figure out how to differentiate good PowerShell from bad PowerShell. Now, um, the easiest way to do that from an admin perspective is that you need to deploy code signing so that you kind of like your own code as your own code. That, of course, uh, is not quite as simple because if the attacker compromises that certificate, well, um, the attacker can write us their own code. Not the ideal. And that means we need to have some kind of software process where the admin no longer has direct access to that certificate. And that opens an entire inter entirely interesting bag of uh, snakes, mostly, because you need to get your admins to actually use those processes. And that can be a learning curve where they have a long time to see the benefit, and people usually are not exactly bored with not much, not enough to do on their job. So that is uh, a not quite trivial journey, not because it's technically complex, but because it well requires new processes, new tools. You need to get the humans to actually use that and not work around that. But what we can do otherwise is check for like the profile, this is what a machine is supposed to look like, to be able to at least have a decent chance at detecting problems. On the other hand, you have the problem that if we are monitoring every single device out there, we get a lot of noise, a lot of signals. So figuring out how to not report the, no, uh, the well-known good items is well also important. Hmm. So I do have a question on constrained language mode. If you set constrained language mode up, can you set it to say if you have the right certificate, then all this code is good? Or is it still, even if it's approved on a certificate, going to say these are the allowed contexts we can run? Again, please. So in constrained language mode, because you said you, you want to do code signing and you want constrained language mode, can constrained language mode look at something that's like, this is signed with the right, right cert, I'm not going to worry about what's in it, or is it always going to still dive in and make sure you have the approved language that you have uh, in constrained? The constrained language mode does not apply to um, whitelisted files. Now, how you do that whitelisting and how you determine that, there are different ways. Code signing is the key part, and you can have a constrained language mode console run a code signed script file that is explicitly whitelisted. And uh, it will then run the script not in constrained language mode, instead in full language, but the console remains in constrained language mode. Now, here's one important thing. This only works if you have a separate execution context. So if you've got a console that is not, that is in constrained language mode, and you try to dot source a script into the current console, this is going to fail because you don't get a new execution context. And um, base, uh, PowerShell basically says, it will tell you, uh, no, we can't run a trusted script in a non-trusted context because the attacker could be compromising things there. This, incidentally, is the reason why you cannot whitelist your PowerShell profile because that's being dot sourced. Mm. Wow. What you can do, however, is you can have a whitelist fi whitelisted file, script file, and call that 
from your profile. So if you need your profile content to run in full language mode in a lockdown machine, don't have it literally in profile.ps1, but reference it in there. Of course, you still can't dot source the file. So instead of dot sourcing, you would do like an ampersand and then do the full path to the file, or how would we go about that? Exactly. Okay. And uh, then you, um, the, the thing is, you can, for example, global scope a function in a script so that even though it was not dot source, the function is still made available to the console. Interesting. Hey, that's a good use case for the global context. I usually hear avoid using global context, but nice. Usually, yes, but for profile content that you need to run in a trust in a constrained language vault managed environment, you go with that. Good tips. Now, Fred, is security hard? Because it sounds like there's a lot of stuff here. Is it fair to say security is a little hard? It's a challenging problem to be responsible for solving? It, it is an extremely complex field, an extremely fast field. And it, the key problem that I've seen so far is an extremely interrelated field. It is very, very rare that you have the full authority over everything that goes into that what you're supposed to be securing. Um, just for example, uh, we have a lot of customer environments where they have an active directory with, um, well, SMB1 active. Oh, boy. That's not because uh, they don't know that's not secure, not because they don't know we really shouldn't be doing this. It's because there's this factory line controlling machine that is running on Windows XP, which they simply cannot drop out of the system because the company wouldn't be working without that, or the cost would be massive. And um, there are similar problems with uh, LAP signing and Linux appliances that still haven't been updated that are somewhat important. Um, you don't, simply don't have the authority to tell them, sorry, you're out of luck. The only workaround that I really have seen so far from most of those problems is that if you can get management buy-in for this, that you basically have a dedicated legacy forest or legacy environment for those machines that uh, they still work somehow. And then you're looking into complicated problems all around uh, data replication, user identity logons, because you also can't really rely on doing a trust there. If you're still talking about Active Directory here, I mean, this is not just an AD-specific topic. So um, it's, it's a pain. So yes, it is uh, annoying. If we were just the tech part, we would be a lot better off. But that's the key thing. Security isn't really a product. It's a process. It's, it's not something you buy once and then you're done. It's a mindset that you have to bring everywhere, get everybody on board. And we all know working with fonts and zeros is fun and easy. Working with people is where things get murky. There yep. you have to struggle where you have to actually uh, try diplomacy. Let's, let's be honest, I did not go into IT because of my excellent people skills. I went into IT because the well, computers don't talk back at me. Yep. My little petty tyrant yesterday. <laughs> and that's something we hear so often from our guests who are pretty far into IT, such as yourself. It's like, at a certain point, the limiting factor of doing things is not technical prowess. It's 
like you're saying, political stuff. It's communicating with these people and sometimes following up or creating the process and then they got to follow the process or, you know, interdepartmental stuff. And maybe there's a history of no communication at these companies. And it, it is a complex thing because it's not just technical. You know, it's not just computers talking back. There's it's squishy. It's like juggling, I feel. Yes, yes. See, I find it comforting, though, that I hit my ceiling early because I refuse to be good at uh, social skills. I know where I'm at, and I could just live there. I mean, I think you're pretty good, man. You do this every week. Um, keep it going. <laughs> but I, I feel you there, man. For me, I've had to really work on my social skills throughout my career in IT, and it's been some of the best um, skills I've worked on. Like learning PowerShell and other things like that have been great, but I think communication skills have been where it's at for me. Now, I want to ask a viewer question. Boop, boop, boop. Shout out to Microsoft MVP, <laughs> Joe Gasper, and fellow Gainesville resident. And he has a podcast. Yes, we're going to get him as a guest in the future. Don't you worry. But he says, for you, Fred, so you've turned on transcripts at the domain level on all your clients and are dumping them to your NAS. What's next? And I know you kind of teased that this maybe isn't the, the best approach, but what would you do with that situation? Well, honestly, I would be sh turning off the transcript and repurposing the NAS, but <laughs> no, um, jokes aside, the, the key problem that I have with transcript logging is that it's mostly at that end from a processing perspective because um, you don't get clear PowerShell code. You don't get clear... Um, anything that you can automatically process in a convenient manner. And that makes it extremely hard to automatically do things with that. And as we already know that we now have every single machine in the domain dumping uh, the transcripts there. And yeah, now what am I, what am I gonna do with that? Uh, I, I recommend script log logging for several reasons. First of all, it's Windows event log based and has automatic log rotate because you, of course, have to deal with that huge dump of data. And it provides the original code that run in a pure form that it can now run through the AST parser and automatically process in whatever way I want to go about that. Also, it opposite to transcript, the file is the same on every single machine. The script code is the same on every single machine for the same script. So I can now um, automatically compare them, build file hashes and have a, can build a proper pattern. With transcript, thanks to the header and the information, there's going to be an individual computer name every single time. There's going to be an individual timestamps going on into that file. And getting all of that out of there, it's, a, it's difficult, especially when we now also have the output running in that file with, again, computer names, timestamps, whatever else you put there that basically make this entire log non-parsable. You can keep it along for forensics if you want something that is more convenient for you to look at as a human after you already know where to look. But at that point, I would posit it's uh, probably more beneficial to take this script log logging and store that in a human-optimized way if the event log is not your kind of thing, which I would totally understand. Because large script logs get broken into individual event log entries and piecing it all together again is a job. Nice. But that's stuff that is free, 
ideally, if you're in a Windows environment, right, you can set up Windows event forwarding, you can enable this on your clients, and it doesn't cost any money, and you're more secure. Because it sounds like the transcripts, having the full logs, maybe that'd be useful post-exploitation, like, okay, this target got hosed, we can look through exactly what was ran, sort of, but it's not going to get you the deep information like the uh, script block logging would where it actually uses, like you said, the abstract syntax tree to see what commands are kind of really run. Because I think we've seen with a lot of these PowerShell texts, they are heavily obfuscated at times and not human readable. Yeah, and that's a lot easier to automatically de detect. Mm -hmm. Then you have the full AST and can just feed it to revoke obfuscation. A great project to determine is a script obfuscated or not. Which, of course, leads us to the problem that some vendors somehow believe that their PowerShell code is worth protecting from unauthorized eyes and also obfuscating it. Mm. Hint that your vendors know your product expertise is where your money is coming from. Your PowerShell code is usually something you would uh, prefer to put in the trash bin most of the time. Mm. Um, okay. Uh, I like uh, that. We should have been saying that. But <laughs> so. Now it's, yeah. No, no problem. So I have one more viewer question from the legendary and podcast guest of ours, Drew McClellan. What are the do's and don'ts of PS remoting? I know there has been talk of using SSH to connect. How should people be going about PowerShell remoting? Well, um, cautiously and usefully. Um, OK, dump uh, answer away. Um, Aside, let's uh, look at it. Well, one of the things I really want to encourage people is look into uh, not messing with the bloody authentication. Hmm. There are aspects that I really would prefer if people could not do. One of them notably be using CRED SSP authentication, unless they absolutely have to, because that kind of gives your credentials to the remote machine. By default, in a Windows environment, we're using WinRM and Kerberos authentication. That's great. It uh, basically means the target machine cannot act as you. The problem with that is that you then can't, from that remote session, connect to another remote machine because without a uh, Kerberos TGT token, it cannot uh, access this, the second machine. It's, it's a just a classic. Problem, right? Which yeah. is the classic double hop problem, yes. There are ways around it. One of them is CRED SSP, which means you fully trust the target machine. And is something of a mess to set up, but you can do it. And if you really, really must, you must. But I would recommend instead looking into, for example, JIA with a group managed service account and absolute minimal privileges. Capra's uh, constraint delegation is another way to solve the double hop problem. And that uh, nice. is uh, one of the key problems from a security perspective. From a coding perspective, the a real big don't is um, forgetting about PowerShell remoting sessions. I've seen so many scripts where people use invoke command to the target machine, get data back, do some simple reprocessing that it could have done in the remote session, then again call invoke command to the remote machine. This means you uh, have a latency issue. That means you're transporting data back and forth, which can be expensive. And with a PowerShell remoting session, you can have variables in that remote session and reuse it. So there, even if you want to go back and forth multiple times, um, 
you can still do that with sessions and don't have to transport the data back and forth every single time. The next big one for all that is holy. Please do not use for each loops within well command. If you give all of your servers to invoke command in one go, it will do parallel execution for you. Mm -hmm. if, if for each loop, you have to wait for server one to be done before you go to server two, before you go to server three. If you give them all, they will be processing all at the same time. Next thing, there's a nice uh, parameter in PowerShell that is extremely underutilized to the point that most people don't even realize it exists on literally every bloody command out there. It's called mm. error variable. We all know about error action, but we don't know about error variable. What you can do with invoke command is you can go with um, error action silently continue, error variable failed, and every single server you couldn't reach, you can have a dollar, dollar failed variable, and you can access that the target object property and get a list of all of the servers you failed to connect. So you don't have to try catch every single individual in the command execution, and you're good with that. Which leads us to the third, please do not do this. Do not use test connection or other things to make sure your target computer is available. You're wasting your valuable time waiting for something that may not provide any insight, because pinging a machine, whether it listens, kind of fails if it doesn't allow ICMP packages, which is a common firewall configuration. Just do invoke command to all of your machines, error action, error variable, and you'll know whether it was available or not. You don't have to do a test connection first as a redundant test here. Oh, gosh. I know I've been guilty of doing this. This is, uh, if so. I'm being honest, these last couple <laughs> ones feel real targeted. It's starting to get personal. I think I've used error <laughs> variable like one time ever. I've seen it used. It makes sense. But the way you kind of lay it out, it's like, okay. Use error variable and refer to it. Instead of just looking at a wall full of red text, you can have a freaking object with a nice name that makes sense, and you can do stuff with it. Yep. All right. Um, from a management perspective, make sure you know where you're connecting from and where you're connecting to, and where you're listening on. Just for example, you have uh, you. In the current mobile world, you've got lots of clients that are at home office. Now, many corporate environments say, okay, yes, our into management device there, or whatever your client management tool of choice is, then I study at the home office, but the first thing they're doing is a VPN connection into the corporate. So now they're suddenly in the corporate and you're help desk or your uh, support engineers with sufficient privileges to actually do the job can PowerShell remote to the target machine. It's nice, which means your client has PowerShell remoting enabled. It, what is kind of less nice is that if for some reason the VPN doesn't work, PowerShell remoting might also be enabled in the local network of the home of the user, which is probably not the most secure environment to have PowerShell remoting open. So you can configure on what IP uh, on what network interface by IP filter it's willing to listen on. So please take care where you're willing to accept connections from. Ideally, uh, have an administrative network, and only machines from that network are allowed to power remote to target machines, which cuts a lot of the um, problems an attacker might open you to. 
without impacting users because let's be honest, there's virtually zero use case for one client to connect to another client without yeah. remoting. That'll help with lateral movement. And it's actually pretty easy to implement. You just kind of specify the IP address range of your admins and only accept connections from them. Yeah. And then now got- on the SSH topic, mm-hmm. on the SSH topic, um, well, it's nice. I can recommend using it. It is the future of remoting with PowerShell 7. That is not to say WinRAM on Windows is going to go away. It just means that new features around PowerShell remoting are always going to treat SSH as the first-class citizen. And WinRAM is something that we will support if we're able to. So investing more into SSH is definitely not a miss. If you're in a Windows-only shop, however, there is no need to do so. Um, It adds complexity, and if your organization does not have the PowerShell skills to actually use this effectively, well, it's going to add toil without benefit. It might scare off uh, beginners from going there. So having a plan on how to go about implementing SSH-based remoting and how to teach your people about it is something you should be doing if you want to go that step. There is no need if you are Windows only, but if you're looking into hybrid and long-term, SSH is the path forward. Great answer. Jeez. You know, I'm impressed <laughs> that you're able to follow a, like the thread of thought through all these different technical tangents and you're like still connected to the, to the original question. I love that. I was going to say, no one's going to believe that he just barely heard that question for the first time because it went so in-depth. Like it, Everyone's going to think you did a whole bunch of research there, not just off the top of your head. I actually did get that question quite a few times, and the ones about remoting and the ones about security. Um, basically, I'm uh, at Microsoft more or less the community lead for internal PowerShell community. And that means that in many, many cases, uh, I'm kind of the last people know when they are desperately in need for an answer. So a lot of the questions end up on my table. So, uh, yes, I do have some, t- some sort of conversations more than once. <laughs> well, I just wonder, how have you gone about learning security? Are you like, did you go through a time period where you're really labbing things out? Or was it from like experience on the job? Because to have experience with all this remoting stuff and to you know, it seems like, like you mentioned earlier, it's a very complex field with a lot of different kind of tangents you could get lost in. How did you go about learning security and being qualified for where you are now? Um, I would say running my head against the wall long enough until finally the wall gave in. Um, Chokes aside, after uh, my uh, concluding my university education, I had a first job at a small IT services provider for SMB customers which meant uh, having to master the entire on-prem Microsoft stack, and which meant having a lot of very, very ugly configurations and environments that were not very well cleaned up. It were just maintained enough uh, to just somehow work, which meant I had virtually every single remote PowerShell remoting misconfiguration, especially when it comes to the authentication parts. And that handled a lot of that with a lot of individual test cases where I was able to have some problem, zero documentation, and the need to figure it out on my own. 
that was more or less the start. Uh, I always started when also on the analysis side, on planning things, on figuring out problematic aspects. So I often had to question the plans of others, which meant I had to look up a lot of the technical details of the protocols. For example, how the hell is Kerberos authentication working? What the hell is Kerberos authentication? Those kinds of things I had to look up myself. And um, since I was then the person to shoot holes into the plans of the senior admins, as you know, being the junior guy shooting at the plans of the senior admins and being right about it really, really feels good, especially when you don't drop the salt and so they don't hate you for it. Well, that got me motivated uh, with that. I had a lot of active directory uh, action going on um, that had more from the security planning, uh, obviously. And well, um, it basically, I basically took it from there. A lot of autodidactive uh, figuring out problems. And then I started Microsoft. And well, I fairly swiftly got onboarded with really large scale enterprise customers with extremely complicated macro scale environments that are patently absurd, that are grown environments of mergers and acquisitions, which uh, pushed my analysis skills to an entire new level, to an entire new scope, and had me uh, expanding that thing to the big leagues. And nice. well, here I am today. Here you are, one step at a time. You've, you've done great things, and it's really cool to hear. And I know we've gone through the consistent questions we normally do, but I think this might be a good time. And Jordan, let me know what you think. To highlight three modules, and for each module you highlight, give us one command that is worth, that's notable. Okay, let's start with my latest released new module. And that's called psmd.openai. Oh. Now, uh, PSMD is the prefix for my module, PS module development originally, and PSMD.OpenAI is going to become part of that. I'm going about uh, in the process of, well, um, reworking the way um, I, uh, reworking the way that module is set up. Now, what uh, is special about PSMD OpenAI is it is the tool to be so lazy about one of the greatest problems I had in PowerShell coding. I'm lazy. I'm using PowerShell because I want to make my life easier. Only the problem is the more I do PowerShell to fix problems, the more PowerShell I use cases I have to, I still need to do fixing. Now, one of the things when you do a lot of code is you need to document it. Oh. You know, you write a function, and maybe you should be using help to well, explain how to use it. Now, for all my templates, they've got automatic tests for the release pipelines. And if you don't write your help, your module is not going to ship. That includes my own modules. So if I don't write the help, the module doesn't go live, which kind of leads to those gruntled customers and reduced amount of bragging rights. So, I try to get that right. And what PSMD.OpenAI does for you is with an Azure OpenAI uh, service, if you've got an account for that, um, you can feed it a function and it will write the help for that. Nice. The command for that 
is at PSMD OAI Function Help. Now, here's one important thing about that. This is not just, hey, here's the function code, give me the help. It is, here, give me your folder with all of the scripts and all of the functions in there, parse out every single function definition, feed it to OpenAI, get the help, and write it back to file. So it's not just, here, give me the help, it's fix my entire code base. Hmm. How's that been so far? It has worked flawlessly for my code, and it produced um, well average quality help. You definitely want to review it, but it saves a lot of time and produces decent quality. It's been kind of funny, some of the things, because uh, sometimes you note uh, how it was trained with uh, all the data in the internet. So it sometimes at often notes for some MVP because it has enough uh, examples uh, in its total <laughs> space for that. And sometimes it's plain wrong, but uh, it still gets the structure really, really well. And uh, for a lot of the parameters, it adds that already decently. So it follows the same guidelines for anyone using AI for their code is use it as a tool, but absolutely verify. Yes. Awesome. Great, great so, command. So in, in the, uh, I'm, I actually went and found your, your GitHub for that one as soon as you started. It's basically you did git child item recursively where you found all of the PS1 files for your module and piped that into the add-psmd add OAI function help. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Module number two, what do we got? What do we got? Now, um, this is uh, a module I also recently updated because it is one of the major powers behind the scenes of psmd.openai. The module called Refactor. Now, what it makes Refactor special? What is it? its job? It is an extensible code parser and converter. Its purpose is um, that you basically have an AST scanning engine, and you provide a plugin, what are you looking for? And how do you want to transform it? Then you can feed it a configuration file and make it do this. Um, so what's a good use case example for that? You know about Azure AD, Azure AD Preview, and MS Online being deprecated, which by the way, is something that is, uh, if it doesn't ha hasn't happened yet, it's going to be by the end of the month. I don't know, quite remember if it was beginning or end of June. But they are going to die. You need to migrate your code. So there's a module for, of mine called Please Azure Migration Advisor, which uses Refactor to do just that. It has a configuration file, old command, new command, parameters, some migration advice notes. Sometimes we don't have a proper new command, but we still need a warning. And refactor allows us to then scan for that and update our code base. With some more assistant modules, you can also scan your entire GitHub organization or Azure DevOps organizations. Because sometimes the code just doesn't come to you and not everything is in a folder. Nice. So that's where refactor comes in. You can do a lot of changes with that, and it's doing its best with the default plugin for commands. For example, um, it will pick up parameter names from splats that you're providing to it. 
And well, it's uh, it's an extensible framework. So the next time I have a coding project that needs something, I already have everything in there, which is incidentally what I then used for um, well, PCMD.OpenAI. I just built a plugin that would scan for function definitions. And that gives me the function definitions. And I provided um, a way to tell it this is what, what it's going to, supposed to look like now, which is what OpenAI uh, provides to help. And then it feeds it back to refactor to write it back into the script files. Nice. Good answer. The last so and final. The last one, last yeah. and final one. No, this, uh, this needs to be good. Mm. We already, already bragged plenty about PS uh, framework, so I'm not going to be using that one. Um, PS Util? Hmm? PS Util might actually be an excellent use case. OK, let's go with PS Util. PS Util, uh, since we are in the uh, week of the profile, PS Util is basically my PowerShell profile. At some point, it was about 5,000 lines of code, and I decided, you know what, Fred? Getting that migrated to every single target machine is something I don't want to do. It's, it's a hassle, and it's annoying. So what I did instead is hey, I wrapped up my module, my, my profile, put it into a module, and pushed it to the PS gallery. Since there are no secrets in there, it's just, well, Fred being lazy. Uh, that's convenient enough. And the one uh, command out of that that I really want to um, promote is the command called setPSUPrompt. What it does, it has a few predefined prompts that you can apply to your console. So for example, you can do setPSUPrompt, white space, thread, and you get Fred's prompt. Hmm. It's like a repository kind of sorta for different profiles that you can use as a starting point. No, no, uh, PSU prompt is just for the prompt. Oh, gotcha. The entire module is my profile. It provides a few convenience commands. It provides a few key bindings. For example, um, um, this is one scenario I always encounter. You know, my fingers sometimes type faster before my brain wakes up, wakes up and realizes I actually forgot something. So now I've got this line in my history, sometimes multiple lines, and I realize, wait a moment, Fred. Um, you still need some data from somewhere else. So what many people, including Fred, usually do in that case is hit escape, clear the thing, get that information into a variable, and then start typing again. Now, this uh, turns out to be less efficient because I need to write the same code twice. So I added a key binding called Alt-W, which will take your current input, insert it into your command history without actually executing it and then clear in your input line. So now okay. I can grab that variable, hit the arrow key twice up, and I've got the entire code I just typed. Nice. Or another one is the F7 key. You know, I've been, I've been an admin for some time, and I still remember that old CMD console with the F7 key that was kind of give me a list of the last commands. That's nice. With PSUtil, you've got that a lot better in PowerShell. You get like an, um, um, what's it called again? Uh, um, a, a, grid, um, a grid view thing menu where you can pick which line do you want, click on OK, and that's your current input line. So you can not just nice. search in your input history, you can insert into your actual input of that. And a lot of other things, you know, I, I, aliases. I'm a big fan of aliases. 
But when you're doing a demo and people see you talking in areas, they're kind of wondering what the hell is the letter S supposed to be? Or the letter C, in case you're wondering, PS YouTube brings the aria C for get command because GZM is too long. So uh, I've got a key binding shift old Q, which will expand all the aliases in the current input. Nice. So I can type aliases because I really can't break that habit. I can still do a presentation of that. So it's all of these kind of small helpers that make my life easier. Nice. And how can people install that module? What do they need to run? Just install module PSUtil. There's oh. nothing special in there other than that. You might want to use mid-scope current user if you're running on a Windows PowerShell and not running as admin and want to have it anyway. Mm -hmm. Then you import it and all the goodness is there, including a few really nifty tools. For example, a convert command if you need to convert binary numbers to decimal, to hex, or uh, sits to ID accounts or whatever. Or, uh, or you know, you know that thing about your, you've got a code a data sample and you want to look what it's looked like. So you do a derp pipe FL wildcard and you kind of get flooded with data because you just get every single file. You actually only about one for a sample. <laughs> well, put an S in between derp pipe S pipe FL and you only pick the first. There we go. Good answer. And all the laziness features you could hope for in there. Right. Well, Fred, I know you've had the privilege of having a front row seat to Andrew Schilling before, and you're one of the rare few that is get to get to, you know, just up close look twice. And, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, Andrew makes it look easy. How does he do it? And and it's, the answer is very simple. It's because it is easy for him. He's built different. He's built better. He's just a, an elevated life form. But he is kind enough to every week step in and show for us. We can see what true perfection looks like. Take it away, Andrew. Thank you so much, Jordan. I love, I get to now have it on recording that, that one time I was called built different. I like that. What's up, people? Did you learn something new today? I learned about 15 new things today. Pretty much everything Fred said was blowing my mind. And now they want me to say like some professional things and, and get you on the same page as us. So I'll let you know what. If you're listening right now, you're my friend, you're Fred's friend, you're Jordan's friend, you're a friend of the podcast. Like, comment, subscribe. Hit the bell. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. You can choose whatever you want. You can listen on the web. Do whatever you want. All right. If you are on YouTube watching us, also check out the shorts we've been putting out. The show notes, there's one of Jordan's, but check it out. We've been doing some really cool stuff. Hope you like it. You can email us, powershell at pdq.com, and we'll see it and we'll read it. We might read it on the air. Or we might just reply privately if it's something like uh, some other messages we've gotten in the past. We're on Twitter at PowerShellPod. I'm Andrew Plotek. He's DevOps Jordan. We're also, uh, well, I shouldn't say we're all on Mastodon. PDQ has a Mastodon. I'm on Mastodon, Andrew Plotek at techhub.social if you are there. Fred, thanks so much for joining us again. Really appreciate Thank you. Me. Yeah, where can people keep up with you? Where can we find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter under Fred Weinman. You can totally find me on the PowerShell Discord under Fred. And you can find me at PSConf.eu. Wow, man, all over the world. I like it. Um, that's also GitHub, I suppose, with a bit of code. 
Definitely. If you're on GitHub and have an account, follow Fred, star some of his repos, follow him if you're using them, see what's going on. Thank you so much, Fred. Longtime friends, I owe a certain degree of my success in life to you and you being willing to mentor me and help me early on. And it played an instrumental role in my um, progress as a power sheller. And to be able to interview you and have a good chat like this means the world to me. So thank you so much for joining us. And audience, thank you for listening. Jordan, your video has been terrible, but you were here in audio form and occasionally your video moved, but we rolled with it. Professionals. Yeah. I'm well aware how bad it's uh, alerting me constantly how terrible my internet is right now. The voice is good, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the PowerShell Podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plough. Two kinds of flavor, two kinds of crunch. The PowerShell Podcast is a production of PDQ.com, making device management simple, secure, and pretty damn quick.